Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chris Evans here. A big thank you for downloading our Virgin Radio podcast. Coming up on this week's edition of The Best of the Breakfast Show with Sky, Liam Gallagher chats his new documentary as it was. Broadcast legend James O'Brien talks politics, interviews and his runaway best-selling book. Dom Jolly tells us about the challenges of hiking over mountains in Lebanon. And Lenny Kravitz shares the only time he's been nervous before a gig. Plus loads more great guests. Enjoy, my friends, enjoy. His debut solo album went platinum, easily outselling the rest of the top ten. With a new single and documentary out now on album number two, Why Me, Why Not on the way. Please go wild for the greatest rock and roll star ever to have walked the earth. It's the one and only Liam Gallagher. Good morning, Liam. Morning, morning. All right, I watched your documentary last night, Liam. It is very, very good. It's very honest. It's very funny. My wife laughed almost from beginning to end, especially when you met your kids at the oh, airport yeah. in Belgium. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you said something like, not exactly this, but you said, like, oh, what's this? Two Muppets for the price of one. Not your exact words, but... <laughs> no, no, there you go. Yeah, no, they're, no they're, they're good at taking it. They can... They dish it out as well, so they're good at taking it back as well. This is Gene and, and, and Lennon. Yeah, they've about. got a good sense of humour, man. Now, what's great about the film, there's so, so much that's watchable about it. I mean, it doesn't stop from beginning to end. There's no baggage at all. Um, it, it's all there. All, all the money's on the screen. It's brilliant. Um, the, the story of... There's a bit of, you know, pre-Oasis even. There's footage of, of before you, you were in Oasis. Then your first days around Oasis, 95, 94, 95. But it basically, the story, the narrative, the main theme of the narrative um, kicks off with you talking about that night in Paris. Can you just take us through, um, leading up to, to, to the big argument backstage in Paris, which saw the end of Oasis. Can you tell us what happened that day and what, you know, just mm, a I few can, hours up to that? Yeah, yeah, to, I can tell you, right. But leading up to it, our kid had developed a really strong relationship with these lot upstairs or downstairs. Some paper begins with S. So there's a lot of stories sort of coming out about me, and I'm thinking, yeah, and how was all this getting out here? And it was a source said, so I, there was a lot of, all of a sudden there was a lot of people from these national papers backstage sipping champagne and that while writing dodgy stories about us and that, and I'm thinking, this ain't quite right. Anyway, we're on the train to Paris on the Eurostar, and he's filling them in again, giving it all this, oh yeah, this is what we got up to last night and all that, so we were having a couple of drinks and stuff. We get off the, uh, we get off the train and we go to the gig, and I confront him with it. I said, look, I said, you better stop bringing all these people backstage who are writing naughty stories about us. And he's going, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then it all kind of kicked off from there. But it was coming. You know, it wasn't just a flippant thing. This thing had been happening. It had been brewing for quite a bit. So was it actually in your dressing rooms backstage at the venue? Yeah, Paris? just before we went to go on, he'd come in and he's, I've said something to him and he's said something to me. And then he smashed my guitar up for the record. I didn't smash his up. One that I got bought for my 40th off my then... No, my ex-wife and that, and my kid, and it had like a nice message on the back of it. He smashed that up, and that was the end of it. I went on stage, got his, and then smashed his. It's yes, all very did, childish. So you that, did go on stage, so they did see I went, it. I went on stage, waved at the crowd, and then just quickly grabbed, had, a, had a tussle with the roadie, right? And got his guitar. And so and, what happened then? And then I come back. We had a bit of a scrap, and then um, I told him a couple of things, and he said a few things to me, and then he clicked his fingers, got his big uh, security guard to drive off. 
then that was the end of that. Okay, and so, and so, so what happened in the next 24 hours from your oh, point I of view? I went on the piss. I went back to the hotel, drank lots, and then we saw, I sort of looked at Gemma and Andy and said, look, just because he's left, we're carrying on, you know what I mean? Obviously, it won't go under the name of Oasis, but we're carrying on, you know what I mean? You, don't, you know, we don't just go on because Noel Gallagher goes on. Okay, and that became BDI? And that became BDI, you know, and I thought we were a good band, but it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, BDI enjoyed it. They did enjoy initial success. Yeah, how, how long was it after Oasis split up, or was split up by Noel, that, that BDI lasted for? How long was that? A couple of years? We'd done two albums, yeah. Two or three years? Maybe two or three. Maybe All right, two. and so and then you had sort of, you know, you call it the wilderness period, call it what you like. Yeah, I, yeah. I had mine, you had yours, other people have had theirs. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say, I mean, I was, I didn't go anywhere, I didn't go to the moon and that, I just had to, <laughs> I had to just close the curtains. Did you get close to the moon? Yeah, I to, well, I just had to close the curtains and tie it, you know, tie up the, the milk that I'd spilt, you know what I mean? And I was very busy, I wasn't like sitting at home twiddling my thumbs, I was in and out of court every day, you know what I mean? This is life, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course it is. And so then you end up in Ireland somehow, in right. a pub. Now, why <laughs> yes. did you go to Ireland? Because this is, honestly, the story, you think you know the Oasis story, you think you know the Gallagher story? No, you don't, you've got to watch this film. So why did you go to Ireland on this particular day? What were you there for? Because I've got, my mum lives in, mum's got an house in Ireland. Right. So we went over there to see my mum, me and my brother. And uh, obviously, you know, when you go over there, you know what I mean? It's hard to stay out of them pubs, them Guinness. Because they're so lovely, they're so Amazing. gorgeous. Amazing. Well, you go in there for the spade and you come out <laughs> spangled, you know, come out with a bucket and, you know, all oh, that stuff. Anyway, so we went on there, we got on a session like you do and that, and we'd, that was the end of it. Someone had to get the band come in and started playing music. The, 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 in the footage, you see some, some older guys surrounding you and you're That's in the it. middle of... Yeah. There's nobody under 70 around you at all. I mean, yeah. there's people, young people in the pub, but you're right in the middle of the old guys yeah. who I presume with the band because there's a banjo behind one of them. That's right, yeah. They're pl they playing there every day, I think. So did you see them play? Did they get you in the mood yeah. for music? Well, I was at the bar having a drink and then they were playing and I thought, you know, well, you know it's like after you've had a couple of pints, you think you're it claps don't you? <laughs> So I've gone, yeah, I guess that guitar over there. And, and then that was the end of that. I mean, I've not looked back at it because I'm too embarrassed. No, but well, it is what it is. No, no, no. Well, it is what it is. But you've got to thank that. You, yeah. If you hadn't walked into that pub and seen that band and sat down with those guys and picked mm. up that guitar and yeah. played that song yeah. that you nobody knew you'd written yeah. and somebody hadn't filmed it on a phone yeah. and then put it out on the internet and it's exactly. gone viral and watched by millions of people in the first 24 hours, we wouldn't be having this conversation well, now. There you go. <laughs> and that's fate. So well, thank no. heaven you went to that blimmin' pub. Oh, well. Where know. is it? I, I want to go. To... It's in Charlestown in Mayo. I'll be back there soon. I want to go. Yeah, I, it's good. I think you should launch your second album in that pub because Mate, that's no. that's what you know. You have to thank it somehow, don't you? Well, you don't. You do what you want. No, no, I do. I love pubs. Yeah, I want to so, go to one now. So, so do I. <laughs> I am later. And what's really nice about um, in the documentary is. You, there's a lot of you in the studio making the first solo album, yeah. and you seem like if you don't mind me saying, a different Liam. You seem like you've found your real self and you, you're in the middle of it, you're turning up on time, you, you're excited about every track, you're fully involved. You are running the show, which you'd never done before. No, but to be fair, though, Chris, man, I used to love being in the studio, you know what I mean? I was, and I was always there on time. I was the first one in and the last one out. So, no, no you know, I, I definitely... I love being in the studio. But, you know, our kid used to take over and, you know, and all that nonsense. But I, I was, all, I loved the studio. So, but it was, it was a rebirth for you, wasn't it? Like, yeah. long before? No, well, yeah, you get another chance at it, get another crack at it. You've got to, you've got to show up. So that first gig, OK, the, the first gig back. Uh, the Ritz in Manchester, was that it? Yeah, after the bombing, Ritz, yeah. Ritz in Manchester. So first gig back. Um, and the, the Manchester Arena bombing happened as well. Yeah, I was nervous at that one. I've got to, I got to be honest. Well, you, you're bound to be. Yeah. And it was a very fragile time in Manchester. Manchester needed joy uh, back. It also needed resilience, which you provided. Um, but people who've seen Oasis, back, you know, from the beginning, from the first seed of the first O of Oasis, said that they hadn't seen an atmosphere 
ever like that night in the Ritz? Can you can you tell us it from your point of view on stage, please? Uh, just nervous, you know what I mean? Obviously, with what had gone down. I mean, I wasn't thinking about anything dodgy was going to happen because I just wanted to just bring a bit of smart, you know, what just make people have fun and that. And, like, sometimes... Sometimes that don't happen, you know what I mean? But did so, you get that it was different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, because people have come out after what's going on and it's like, you know, they're coming to see you and all that. And you, just want to, you just want to send them home happy, you know what I mean? And, like, you just want it to be good, you know what I mean? All right. There are so, like I say, there are so many hotspots in this film. So the next one I want to talk about is Glastonbury. So you at Glastonbury, oh, yeah. you know, solo, you got your band, of course. Yeah, uh, but yeah, we yeah. say solo. I hate that phrase, solo. I hate it as well. But, but you are Liam Gallagher and you do have this regular band who are now your best mates and they're brilliant at their jobs and they're yeah, so supportive and so they'll collaborative. They'll appreciate that. Well, it's so important. It's so important. They're, they're so glad to be working. You, you know, they're, they're writing songs, they're recording. Yeah, um, funny you, as well. They've got good sense of humour. With smiles on their faces. <laughs> and when you're smiling, you're flowing. You're yeah. in flow. So you go to Glastonbury. Uh, you played the pyramid stage. You played it before. You've headlined before the Oasis, but this isn't the headline slot. This is the afternoon slot. Yeah. Okay. Again, there's trepidation. Again, how many people will turn out? Okay. If there's, if the, it's a massive turnout, how many will be there because they want me to succeed? How many are there baying for me to fail? Oh yeah. If it, Tell yeah. me about the moments backstage before you went on stage for that. So backstage, just sort of just sitting there playing my guitar, waiting to go on. But I never felt. I felt confident that day, man. I wasn't nervous that day. I thought big, big gigs are where I'm at. You know what I mean? I was like ready to get on there. You know what I mean? And even if there was no one there, did I still got it? You know what I mean? But it so, was huge. The turnout was yeah, huge. The reception was, was yeah. huge. But yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of people there to like Wondering see me. But, and but I don't know about that, man. There was a lot of love in the air. So maybe I'm doing them a disservice. But I'm sure there was a few little snidies hanging about, <laughs> wait, waiting, waiting, to really clap really loud when I do something wrong. You know what I mean? But. Yeah. The majority of it, everyone was right up for it. And I, you look very well. You look really healthy during a lot of a lot of the last couple of years of, of the film. And uh, I was thinking, is he off the booze? Then, then you, I thank heaven you cracked open a bottle of Corona backstage. So like, oh, okay, good. Yeah. This is, and I thought, Corona. I love a bottle of Corona oh, or a bottle yeah. of Sol. Yeah. I go for either of those. Yeah, and like cider as well with a load of ice in it. As long as it's freezing cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good choice. No, I, I do. I like, I like alcohol. You know, so you've got to drink responsible and all that. Nonsense. So, what did you do after after Glastonbury? So, you you, you went backstage with Debbie. Uh, it was high fives and hugs and kisses, all right. <laughs> you said you shed a few tears uh, because it was it was it was such a, a great occasion. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So, did you stay out all night? Did you? Oh yeah, good for you. Right, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We stayed out in, in some. We were just hanging about in a wigwam. You know what it's like. As soon as you have a bit of stuff, <laughs> you, just, you just think like everything that comes out of your word is godlike. So, I think I might have accosted people in a wigwam. And just talk to them I'm for sure, about nine I'm hours. I'm sure they wouldn't have minded. Yeah, uh, no, right. it was all right. So, so, and then, <clears> so the solo albums, uh, first week sells 103,000 copies on the first day, Debbie, or the first week was that? 103,000. First week, okay. Gangbusters, beyond your wildest dreams. Tell me about the moment you find out, found out about the, the sales. Yeah, I knew the album was good, but, you know, obviously there's always room for improvement, but, no, I was totally into it, man. Totally blown away by the reaction and that. Still haven't really thought about it because... You're just always on the move and that, but you know, I don't totally appreciate it. But I just think it's the young people, the younger generation now, like the people, the dads that were in a wash, they've got kids now, and I think. And they're turning up in their yeah, tens of yeah. the hundreds I think, of thousands. I think they've got no choice. I think their parents are just going, like, ah, get them watching. <laughs> yeah, but they don't you know mind, I mean? they don't mind. No, no, no. So I appreciate that the youth are coming out to watch us do all what right. we do and all that. And, and there's, there's a lovely moment in the movie as well, uh, towards the end, um, where. Um, Somebody says, I can't remember who it was, to be honest, says uh, we played 162 gigs with Liam's brand new album, which is more than we played in the first two years of Oasis. So obviously you booked a few 
arenas, they mm. turn into stadiums, yeah. uh, countries turn into continents, yeah. continents turn into the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, man. One day at a time, isn't it? You've just got to just go with the flow, aren't you, I guess? You know what I mean? See where you end up. Right, OK, well, where we've ended up is second album time. How do you feel about this one compared yeah. to the first, which is out in September, I yeah. think? Yeah, no, rare and it goes miles better as far as I'm concerned. There's a lot of the sound, the production's a lot bigger. Uh, so, yeah, some big, big songs on there, man. All right. OK, same gang, same writing team, same producers, yeah, me, same studio. Same studio, me, Greg Kirsten, Andrew Wyatt, and... Uh, we had most of it done. We've done most of it. And I know people are going to go, yeah, right. We recorded six songs in a week, which are, the, which are probably going to be all the singles. So then we had about six months off, twiddling our thumbs, and then we done all the fillers last week. All right. <laughs> um, the day that you launched your last album, the first solo album, um, you came on this show, this mm. actual show, and you played uh, four songs live for us. Oh, yeah, yeah. So cheese. maybe it's, that's a good omen. So maybe you do that again for the second album. Yeah, well, what are we doing? What, in here? Yeah. Yeah, it's bigger than that other room, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? It's a better view. It's a better view as well. No, I'm all for that. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay, I won't hold you to it, but I hope it happens. No, hold me to it. All right, pal. Thank you, Debbie. Is Sam here as well? No, Sammy's not here. Okay, got a day off. Okay, well, there's Sam is. Liam, joy to talk to you. And you, Chris. All right, pal. God bless you. God bless you. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky Virgin Radio. Screaming into a massive mobile phone on the telly, going to school with Osama bin Laden, and hiking across Lebanese mountain ranges. Our next guest leads a varied life. His new book, The Hezbollah Hiking Club, is out on Thursday, and here to tell us all about it, it's the wonderful Dom Jolly. But he's not Lebanese. Well, I only say that. Sorry. I only say that because it's very difficult for me to get into the States. I mean, I've been to North Korea, been to Iran. It says I was born in Lebanon. So I'm trying to get my visa back. And it's it not was helping. just about to happen. I was literally getting it tomorrow oh, and it's gone again. They were there. getting the stamp ready. Yeah, I'm in a Trump camp from tomorrow. But you have a huge bit of previous with the Lebanon. So where, yeah, I do. Where, how come the confusion occurs in the first place? Well, I grew up there. Uh, like My parents worked there and I grew up there. Uh, but I grew up there in the middle of a civil war. So my parents kind of had this amazing life out there and they were going on expeditions and Lebanon's an incredible place, Syria's an incredible place. So I grew up with all these photographs and films of them going on these expeditions and like literally being explorers. But when I was, when I was a kid, uh, the war was on. So I was kind of stuck in my little bit of Lebanon and then I'd come to boarding school here. So I'd spend half the year with a, in a posh boarding school with current members of the Tory cabinet and Radiohead. And then I'd go... <laughs> 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 and Tim Henman, and then go back to <laughs> Lebanon. Go back to Lebanon for a, for a bit of war. So my kind of what I did in the holidays essays were much better than most people because they were all Jim Carners and you know I, I I joined the House of Lords and I'd be like, well I sat in a bomb shelter. But I've turned fifty and I thought, right, it's time I kind of went back and sort of explored the Lebanon and never did. So I kind of had a midlife crisis with two of my best mates. Right, now I said you went north to south, so I got that wrong as well. So you're not Lebanese and you didn't go north to south. <laughs> no, you were well, brought up south, in the Lebanon. Yeah. You went to lots of posh, a posh school with lots of people that we've now since heard of. And there we go. won various things and are trying to win various things this week, funny yeah. enough, uh, via various votes happening on Thursday. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't go north to south, you went south to north, but it did take you 27 days? Uh, well, yeah, I'd like to say oh. we did the whole thing, but actually we kind of had quite a lot of medical issues along the way. Really? Yeah, yeah, we had knees going and... We had quite bad hangovers. Uh, we had, That's not medical. That's we, not medical. We had one machine gun incident which stopped us for a day. Tell us about that. Uh, well, the Lebanese have this really weird way of celebrating where... Uh, Basically, if you know, here, if we have something that happens that's good, you set off fireworks. In Beijing, when I was with Vassos, mm. fireworks were everywhere. In Lebanon, they have a thing called feu de joie, where they just fire machine guns in the air. You'd think they do enough shooting anyway, but anything, wedding, election results, they just fire everything they've got into the air. 
And we were there during the election, and we were at this place called Balbet, which is the biggest Roman temple in the world. We had it to ourselves. It was amazing. And then suddenly three French tourists wander in, and I was like a bit... It was like we had the whole place oh, apart from them, no. but it kind of irritated me. <laughs> so we left and sat at a cafe outside and we're having a beer. Suddenly, the whole place just explodes, and it's because Hezbollah had won the election. Right. I knew that. Yeah. So everyone was firing machine guns, a couple of RPGs. We were sitting there calmly. The French... No one had told them, <laughs> sprint past our cafe, sprint past our cafe, get in the van and screech off. So it's good. You know. What happens to the bullets? Yes. Are they bullets or are they blanks? No, they're, they're real. So, so where do they go, the bullets? Well, what goes up must come down. So, yeah, see. there are quite a few casualties every time. Honestly? Yeah, honestly. So let's talk about you going to Beijing. Who on earth sent you to <clears throat> Beijing and what did you get up to there apart from having lunch with this... Uh, well, Muppet over well, again, it was, <laughs> it was when I was writing for the, the Independent and I did a column for the Independent for 15 years. And one of the things, again, growing up in Beirut, what I wanted to be when I grew up, there weren't many things that were cool in Beirut growing up. And it was either a diplomat, which I was at one stage, or a foreign correspondent. Now, I couldn't be a foreign correspondent because I couldn't be Robert Fisk or whatever, but I was playing golf with the editor of the Indy. And I said, you know what? I've always wanted to go to an Olympics because one of the things about the Olympics is whenever you hear about people going to the Olympics, they always... They're either in sport or they've done it. And I'm like, what's the Olympics like just for someone who has no idea what it's like? What is the Olympic village? I mean, what happens? So they sent me to Beijing and it was amazing. I'd literally just wake up in the morning, go downstairs and there'd be a list of these weird events. So archery, walking, fencing. And you think, right, I'll have a bit of that. And then I'll go to the, the Greco-Roman wrestling where every country is hairy. And it's like, I mean, it was so weird. And, and then- some of the weirder sports were the best, like fencing was dramatic. I know. Oh, incredible. Walk, um, archery was pretty cool. I mean, it was just weird stuff. And because of the time zone differences, you and I were on the same show. We were on uh, Five Live Drive, which started at yeah. about midnight and ended at on about 3 a.m. On a roof somewhere, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was <laughs> there was Peter Allen, who was hosting right. the show. I was doing the sport. You were doing the flippant comments. I That's do right. both of those roles no, who's on this doing show. The colour? Who's doing the colour? <laughs> yeah. Not flippant comments, it was colour. And we had, uh, I can't remember, one of the British athletes came on and threw up live on, on the show, oh, which yes. was good. So, yeah, it was all happening out there. It was great. <laughs> and I got in a fight with the American basketball team. Uh, what, as an ex-diplomat? Yeah, as an ex-diplomat. Well, I was, that's why I'm an ex-diplomat. I wasn't very good at that. But they cue-barged on the Great Wall of China and I wasn't having it. Yeah, you weren't. No, well, why would you? So, so how do you take issue with the DSA netball team? Sorry, uh, baseball, baseball. Very carefully, because they're okay. quite big and quite aggressive. Right. So I pulled what, what, back quite quickly. Well, I was going to say you put yeah, yeah. right there. And then we ended up at a, at a restaurant where you ate nothing but p- different parts of a donkey. So you got on which well Which was then. quite odd. Yeah. Is that, what, is that what I turned you... No, he doesn't eat me at all, though. Is that what did it? Was it the donkey that did it? <laughs> yeah, it was donkey and... No, it was just donkey. Tortoise, wasn't it? It might have been tortoise. Yeah. I just stuck to donkey. Oh, no wonder. But when I say there was every part of the donkey, I mean yeah, no, every I, 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 part I, I, of the donkey. We filled in our own gaps yeah, there, Dom. Yeah. That's fine. And Vassos really went for it, is all well, I can no say. Well, no wonder you're a blimmin' vegetarian stroke... Nearly a vegan just, now. Are you? You weren't then. No, I really wasn't. Well, no, if you eat a donkey. <laughs> no, <laughs> the thing here. Definitely not vegetarian. <laughs> Legs, everything. Yeah, would you go for a leg or? <laughs> everything. A you know what we went for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course we did. All right, well, Dom, lovely to see you. Thank you so much You're for You're always me. welcome here at our brand new home. Dom Jolly. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. He can reduce even the most fearsome politician to a quivering, stuttering mess. That's, and that's it... not what we have in, in common, by the way. That bit, <laughs> not that bit. And it's great. With the paperback edition of his fascinating book, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong, please welcome Westminster's very own watchman. It's Mr. James O'Brien. Good morning, James. Oh, thank you very much. What an introduction. Well, you're very welcome. Thank now, you. Dapper Dave and you have history, don't you? You have previous. We, we did. We, we were going to change the world of media at one point. We but were. 
didn't quite work out. Well, what, well, what did work out? What happened? <laughs> it was, First it, of all, how did you meet? Where did you meet? What were you doing? Uh, it, I was working for an online TV platform called Friction TV. Right. And we used to go to James's uh, studio and film his, uh, what would you say, opinion pieces? I used I to do little, little sort of... Vignettes. Well, you know, like these clips that go viral now. Yes. This was, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. And trying to actually manage... So in many ways, they were, Dave was they were way ahead, ahead of, of his time. Way ahead. Way ahead of his so time. So they were too prescient for their own good. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. We had David Blaine in last week, right? Yes. And David Blaine, he was amazing. Um, and we, we thought afterwards, he, he did some things to us or, or via us. Um, tricks, obviously. Right. Illusions. Uh, magic, if you like. And we, we couldn't help thinking. And we, by the way, there's cameras everywhere here, so we could watch you back. But yeah. I don't want to watch you back because I, I don't want to know how he did what he did because I just like the theatre of it all. Mm. Um, but we, we think he... There was some auto suggestion going on. Right now, are you the David Blaine of radio? Not do, in a million. Not in a million. Do you auto years. suggest things? To, do you know when when a, a person comes on? Do you know it's, this is going to take me about three minutes or five uh, minutes? Or there, 10 are, minutes? there are phrases certainly. I don't, I don't. I don't have any dark arts. But if someone if someone parrots a phrase that that is out there unchallenged, like it's it's political correctness gone mad, or we can't control our borders, or or um, you know we, we we have all these laws imposed on us, then then yeah, I can pretty much within 30 seconds tug that thread and the whole suit will fall apart what's astonishing is that it never happens on on question time or on or, or on the big political shows because the household name politicians can say all this stuff and and again there'll just be someone on their other side there for balance no one will actually say well actually where's the truth you know what they say about journalism if someone tells you it's raining and, another, and it really is raining today. And, and given that we're on the 17th floor, I'm not going to follow this through to its conclusion. But if someone tells you it's raining and someone else tells you it isn't, our job is to stick our head out of the window and find out whether it's raining or not, not to treat both positions with equal validity. But we're not doing enough of that at the moment. Now, you do mention Brexit a lot um, in your day job. Uh, by the way, what's this half-baked excuse you've got to be somewhere by 10 o'clock this morning? I don't, so you I don't know what, what that is means. That about? I've just got a bit of shopping to do. I, I, I can't got, you know, believe I got, it. Could be more trains, pressing than being here with us. <laughs> Anyway, so um, you do say on on occasion, you do say that Brexit might be your fault because you hosted Newsnight for a while and you weren't as um, vociferous in certain aspects of the the whole conversation as you might be for certain reasons. And yeah. looking back on that now, you sort of you give yourself a bit of a hard time sometimes. Do you think I I, I wouldn't have gone as quite as far as as taking responsibility for it? But no, I think no, I think the, the, <laughs> I think the broader question of BBC impartiality. Is, is, is a big problem. I was looking back at... Uh, I had to stop presenting Newsnight because BBC impartiality rules mean that you can't express strong opinions anywhere, not just when you're in that studio. Yeah. You know more about this than I do. But but you, I was getting gypped for what I did on Twitter, what I do on my own radio show, all, all manner of different outlets. And I felt at the time, and I still do, that two big issues facing the Western world, Brexit and, and the election of Donald Trump, were they needed a different approach. You, you, I watched a clip back the other day. Andrea led some... And Pascal Lamy, who's a former head of the World Trade Organization, it's from about three years ago, from before the vote. And Pascal Lamy sits there and almost syllable for syllable predicts what has happened in the last three years. Yeah. And because he ran the World Trade Organization, yeah, yeah. he knew what he was so talking, he about. What he's talking about. And, and yet I had to sit there as a BBC presenter and go, thank you very much, former head of the World Trade Organization. Now, Andrea Ledson, tell me why the former head of the World Trade Organization is wrong about what the World Trade Organization does. And I just began to think, this isn't a bit like saying, here's a Conservative, here's a Labour person, or here's a Liverpool fan, here's a Manchester United fan. This is a bit like saying, here's a fact, and here's 
an alternative fact, as Donald Trump might call it. And and I, I still don't think the BBC model is is built for that. And and I still don't think they're doing the, the simple bits right, like asking, what do you mean when you talk about control? What do you mean precisely when you talk about borders? What is this money that we don't have control over? Because it's less than 1% of our national expenditure. Why did you get away with sticking that thing on the side of a bus? And, and it, you, you can see with the state of the Conservative leader elected. Right. Okay, Sorry, mate, get... you put a penny in the slot. No, 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 no
I did all my first promotion and uh, club shows. And isn't it funny because a lot of uh, a lot of so European musicians end up on the west coast of America in Southern California, but you sort of did the opposite. Was it because of that? Was it an accidental love affair? I mean, I, I got to Europe and I, I fell in love. Uh, and, and um, you know, I'd, I'd never really been, I'd gone through Holland once as a kid on the way back from Africa. But yeah, it, it became a, a thing for me. And I ended up spending a lot of time. Uh, and as you know, I live in Paris now. Uh, so I'm over here a lot. Now, Rachel has a question. Have you watched Big Little Lies? Uh, of, of course. Excellent. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, Zoe is amazing in it. Well, well explain, for people who don't know, can you both of you explain what you're talking about Okay, now? Lenny, give us your take on Big Little Lies. Well, my daughter's on the show, so of course, when it first came out, I watched. And it ended up being a really uh, great show. They just finished their uh, filming their second season, and... Uh, it's coming out now. It drops today on Sky Atlantic. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's huge. We should have been talking about this more, actually. <laughs> I forgot. We're sponsored by Sky, and this is a really big deal. Meryl Streep joins the cast. Meryl Streep is in it. Yes. So the episode one of season two is available from this evening, I think. I've already watched it. It's amazing. And what one of the biggest changes in the characters between season one and season two is with Zoe Kravitz's character. Because if you've watched season one, you know something very significant ends happens at the end of the last episode and its impact on her going forward in season two is pretty seismic well good i, I haven't seen it yet so you're gonna love forward. it yeah, well you won't be disappointed now of course uh, you as well uh, lenny what, what what makes you most nervous watching yourself back in hunger games or watching your daughter in big little eyes uh I don't, I don't get nervous with that kind of stuff um but it's it's exciting to watch my daughter of course um in anything she does you know uh, I was just uh, actually she's just on the cover now of uh, British Vogue, which I just saw, which is quite beautiful. Do you ever get nervous about anything? Because you are one of the coolest customers on the rank. I don't really. It's more. It's more or less a uh, an energy that uh, you know, an excitement. But I don't get nervous. No. Have you never got nervous? Not even as a kid. No. No. <laughs> That's so, you're so blessed for that and many I other think, things, but that particularly, Lenny, I have to say. I think the only time I was ever nervous going on stage once uh, was the first time I played Madison Square Garden in oh, New York. Okay. Just because I'd grown up seeing all of my heroes on that stage. Right. And uh, it's quite an impact. So when I realized I was doing it at this place where I'd seen everybody that influenced me, um, it was kind of a trip. That was the only time. Kind of a trip. Okay. And what time do you usually get up in the morning, by the way, Lenny? Usually about one. In the, I, in the afternoon? Yeah. Because yeah, you, you always, I mean, you're a pretty laid back character anyway, but you always sound laid back stroke. Because, I mean, have you done interviews with us in the past where you then wake up at one o'clock and think, was that, a, did I do an interview or did I dream that interview? Well, I, if I'm not on tour, I do get up earlier. Right. But when I'm on tour, I go to bed late. Right. So, um, you know, I usually go to bed around four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I'm usually up about twelve or one. Okay. So that's why my voice sounds like this. Or no, no, uh, it's, it's just I'm just glad to have you on. Um, and so, if you do remember this interview and you wake up again this afternoon, thank you very much. And if you don't, well, it doesn't matter. 
I, 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 will, I will remember. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Cheers, Lenny. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. He shared screen time with Kira Knightley, Jude Law and Dominic West. Now he's foolishly risking his life by appearing alongside the terrifying Villanelle in Series 2 of the exceptional BBC hit Kill, Knitting Kill. Okay. <laughs> Please welcome the handsome devil, Henry Lloyd Hughes. Good morning, Henry. Thank you very much, Chris. All Pleasure right. to be here. So give us a bit of your CV first. So paint a picture, a little bit of past historical colour um, career? Well, uh, I was on the uh, the nation's favourite uh, teenage sitcom, The uh, Inbetweeners. Yes, you were. Um, and uh, I was uh, delivered uh, quite a few wedgies for a few years. That was in many ways my grounding. Was that a laugh? That was my training. Um, I, I, I once wedgied the... When, when I did the wedgie in the movie, it actually gave me whiplash. Right. Um, so these are the kind of ways in which I've suffered for my art. Okay, Dominic West, uh, you've acted alongside him, Jude Law, Yes, we did Les Mis. We did a bit of Les Mis, yeah. which is... Um, you You're looking know, a bit Les Mis this morning. Well, I, I, I thought you were going to comment on <laughs> the illustrious moustache, which is... Um, it, 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 men seem to be impressed by it, but unfortunately, unless I'm auditioning to play a colonel, yeah. it's kind of the death of my uh, career at okay, the same time. Okay, well, why the tash right now? Well, I'm actually doing a series for Netflix about the, uh, the, the history of football. Um, but in the 1870s, right. when, uh, you know, uh, uh, people were allowed to drink beer and smoke cigarettes at the same time as playing. 1970s as well. Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, it lasted for a good 100 years. Uh, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, it was written by Julian Fellows. Um, and so I'm playing a footballer of the old school, I which hence it. this um, uh, appendage. It. It's great. It's great. How, I mean, would you know about, because all tashes have names now. That's a certain style, isn't it? What is that one? I, I, I'd probably call it the Colonel. The Colonel. I, I mean, that, that, it's, it's pretty impressive, mm. isn't it? What yeah, do you think, Rachel? Lord Melchit, yeah. isn't it? Yes. In Blackadder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit unavoidable. Every day I feel like I'm leaving the house with a particularly <laughs> Larry hat on. What, um, does your, what does your wife think? She absolutely loathes it. Does she? Uh, yeah, absolutely oh loathes God. it. I slept on the sofa last night, but that's nothing to do with the moustache. But hang on a minute. You know, she, her argument would be, look, sweetheart, Henry... Uh, hubby, um, you know, ex-love of my life, so you agree that <laughs> monstrosity under your nose. Look what they can do with prosthetics nowadays. You don't have to have a real one. Is that her argument? Uh, well, weirdly, a lot of people do think it's fake. And on <laughs> the terrible. On, on the job that I was... On the English game, um, uh, the costume girls uh, came up one day and they said, oh, and I was, I was kind of uh, itching it slightly, and they said, oh, those fake ones can be a little bit itchy, can't they? And, you know, irrespective of the fact that I'd, I'd had it on the entire time since I started the job. Um, so it, it's too good to be true, perhaps. Henry also worked on Harry Potter, or did he? Let's look at the evidence. Over to you, Henry. Um, I was a young man and uh, keen to uh, make my way in the showbiz uh, universe. And I got offered what seemed like a twinkly role in the wonderful world of Harry Potter. And uh, I appeared at the gates of Hogwarts, my wand tucked neatly under my arm, uh, keen to make a good impression. Uh, swiftly to be told on the first page of the screenplay that even though I'd got the role as a Quidditch captain, there was to be no Quidditch this year at Hogwarts. Um, I then realised that uh, my ten or so lines of dialogue quickly were to become five, four, three, two and none. Um, I ended up with one line which I tried to say to uh, Maggie Smith though she was a little bit too unpleasant and uh, uh, wouldn't give me the time of day and uh, then uh, basically I was invited to the premiere and I eventually saw the movie and I was like oh, that, my one line has been shifted quite far back in the film and then I got a little bit 
further through the film, and I was like, it's been really, it's been really shifted quite this far back. This is clever. This is, this clever. is really clever. And then I was like, oh, they must have left it to the last scene in the film. Yes. And then the credits rolled, and they'd spelt my name wrong in the credits. Oh, no. <laughs> and how long did this take you in your life? Eight, it was eight months. Eight, eight months. months. Yeah. You were on set every day? You were around set Yeah, every... I was around. So was where around. are we talking about? Are we talking the South Coast? No, no, no. We're in, we're in um, Leavesden, lovely Leavesden. Okay. Um, every day, pitch up for work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there were some very, very nice um, people. In Catering? The, oh, big time. <laughs> I dro- you know what? Here's a, here's a true story. Like, like a, a nervous schoolboy, on day one, yes. I dropped my tray in the, in the canteen in front of uh, Alan Rickman, R.I.P., Maggie Smith, all the big dogs, uh-huh. and I was picking my kind of custard up off the floor whilst they looked down on me. It was, it was very, it was very maybe, much like Maybe that's when the conversation was had. <laughs> We need to we need to get rid of that guy. Get, what is this guy? He can't even carry a carry a roll, he can't even carry a tray. Your name isn't difficult to spell. Um yeah, I, I kind of I every day I would go up and I'd say, Hey, not a big not a biggie guys. Um on the call sheet <laughs> I've noticed my name's uh, spelt wrong. Would you mind if we can we just and they would say, Absolutely, mate. A hundred percent we got that. No, no, a hundred percent. And then uh, the next day would come and I said, Listen, it's not a big deal. Would you mind if we um and they were like, oh, no, 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 100%. We're on it, we're on it. And then I was sat there in the cinema in a, in a you know, ticket that I'd paid for. And then the trailer, <laughs> the credits went up and my name was spelled wrong. And I just thought, which thanks, bit, guys. Which bit did they yeah. spell wrong? No, they, they didn't put the uh, hyphen. It was just like Henry Lloyd Hughes. Oh, dear. Like, uh, like a, as a one uh, So, do, do, <laughs> obviously, do you... People you... still say, oh, you're from Harry Potter. And I, and I'm, I, I kind of smile politely and say, well, I mean, kind yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was there. I was there. Yeah, I was there. But I, I had more of like an authentic Hogwarts experience. And this, there's no anger now. <laughs> there's no latent anger inside. You haven't channeled any of this angst into the, the role you play as the parallel psycho to Villanelle. In... It's all there. Is it's it all there? there behind the eyes, Chris. If you look closely, <laughs> if you get it up on iPlayer, and if you pause, you can see it. You can say, Maggie yeah. Smith, why wouldn't you shake my hand? The it's Harry all there. Potter angst, unbelievable. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Thanks. Come and talk us about talk to us about your Netflix show when you're on. I will do. If you want to. Uh, I'd and, love that. and congratulations on the on the new member of the family. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky Virgin Radio. He transformed from a hard partying actor to an enlightened, mindful being. His new book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness: Meditation in the 21st century is out today and here to help free you and your busy mind is an actual real life monk in the studio <laughs> right now please welcome the serene galong tubten right good morning galong tubten do i call you tubten 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 galong means what Gal- galong means monk so how did you become a monk let's go back to where it all began major meltdown so so i was 21 i was living in new york and i was just i was going to parties i wasn't looking after myself i was incredibly stressed and i got very ill in fact i almost had a heart attack i woke up one morning with all the symptoms of a heart attack went to the doctor and they said you are having a severe burnout and that led to about three or four months of being in bed just unable to move and i just had to stop everything and think about what what am i doing with my life where am i going what What's happening to me? And during that time, I started to read books about meditation. Right. And you know how everything just comes together at the right time? So a very old school friend was there, and she said, there's a monastery in Scotland where you can be a monk for a year. So I, you know, thought, I like that. That's good, isn't it? Because it's not too confrontational. You think, I could manage a year. That's what I thought. I thought a year, that would be like a sort of year, like a rehab type yes, situation. Of and I went there and loved it. And after four days, I was a monk. But again, it was just this one year thing. And what happened during that year is, is uh, I started to go deeper into meditation and Buddhist philosophy and decided to stay. So then I took vows for another year. 
And in my second year, I went into solitary retreat for nine months. And during those nine months of very intensive retreat, that's when I, I realized, actually, this is what I want to do with my life. And I took the full vows to be a monk for life. There's so much um, I could talk to you about before we get on to meditation, but I know that people will be gagging for that particular bit of it. Uh, let's just do a little bit more of your life story. So so you, you went for this, um, it's it's okay, it's only a year to be a monk, don't worry, you don't have to sign up for life, but then you did sign up for life. And then where did you go for, to, from Scotland? You went to, to where ultimately? Well, the monasteries in Scotland, and I stayed there for many years training and uh, then started to teach a little bit, travelling around the UK and Europe giving classes in meditation. meditation but actually 12 years into being a monk uh, I decided to go into another retreat to, to kind of deepen my training and this was a very extreme retreat it was four years long and that was on a Scottish island on Arran right uh, my monastery's got a, a small retreat center there so 20 of us monks basically locked ourselves away for four years and had no contact with the outside world. Now that's pretty extreme, isn't it? So what do you find out about yourself within those four years, having already found a lot out about yourself anyway? Well, you start to realise that you're not as sorted as you thought you were, because right. I, I was a monk already for 12 years and I thought, oh, well, I must be quite sorted out, but I wasn't. I went into this four-year retreat and kind of fell apart and had to face a lot of darkness in myself, very severe depression, panic attacks, all of that. And I thought, wow, this is who I am. Now You take everything away, you're backed into a corner with your own mind and you realise, wow, I've got a lot to deal with here. And that's when the meditation started to kick in. So I'm just reading from your book here. Page 44. The aim of meditation is not to get rid of our thoughts, but to change our relationship with them. Inner peace means to end the war with our thoughts. It certainly doesn't mean to go blank. Right. Tell us more about that, please, if you don't mind. I think a lot of people have an idea of meditation that you clear your mind. You, you sort of sit there and try and just eradicate all your thoughts. And that's impossible. The more you try and push your thoughts away, the louder they shout. And what would be the point of just putting yourself in a kind of like a zombie state with nothing happening? So for me, it's about changing the relationship, being less driven by the thoughts. So in the book, I, t I try to talk a lot about how actually having lots of thoughts doesn't mean you're bad at meditation. It's about returning from the thought to the breath, for example. You could focus on your breathing. Your mind wanders. You bring it back. Actually, the bringing it back is the key point. So bring on the thoughts because that enables you to meditate. You need the thoughts. You need the, the thoughts enable the meditation. And if you understand that, you won't struggle in meditation. That's kind of the message of the book is it doesn't have to be difficult. It can be easy and it can be very... You can make friends with your own you thoughts. You can meditate on the tube surrounded by thousands of other people. I love it. I've done it. I used to always sit on the tube on the way home, headphones on, try and get a seat if you can. If you can't stand up, everybody else is helping you stand up in the crash, put on a 10-minute meditation and just shut my eyes. And, it, yeah, it, I, would be, I would walk off the tube a much happier person than I was. Well, that's interesting. It. However, there is a different take on that, which is you're shutting out the environment you're in. And you can also meditate by embracing the, the, the environment you're in. Because even if it's cars and lorries and planes and trains, as opposed to birds and bees 
and that you're listening to that's all nature we may have created it but it comes from us and so it's about using that sound as a meditation as much as you might use what you're listening to in your headphones as a meditation you can cross that bridge if you want to i think that's a really important point so when i'm standing on the tube i might not do 10 minutes i might do a micro moment where i just totally embrace the environment i'm there standing there feeling the sway of the train listening to the sounds not blocking anything out but just totally accepting the moment and i find if you drop into those little states many many times a day it brings down your stress it increases focus it actually is the secret to happiness the best of the chris evans breakfast show with sky on virgin radio this sunday times top 10 best-selling author ditched the suburbs to live a life we could only dream of now living on a remote 2000 acre farm with her husband clive her nine children her seven dogs her thousand sheep please welcome the yorkshire shepherdess amanda owen morning amanda good morning that Look was a heck of you. a build up it was wasn't it well you're <laughs> worth it now tell us about um the farm first of all so uh, for people who don't know in your book um as i say it's your third book so many do uh, the history of raven seat history of raven seat 2000 acre farm one of the highest remotest hill farms in england it's all moorland it's um it's very much like wuthering heights it's it's open it's wild and um gradually i've been populating it and the last time uh, the telly show was on on channel five which is brilliant one of the best things uh, on the telly oh you watched alone. that oh, i loved you? i loved it i adored it we worshipped <laughs> it together as a family watching your family falling in our family falling in love with yours uh, via the goggle box and um, we witnessed uh, via the television um the coldest one of the coldest winters on record the beast from the east and uh, i you survived that but there was collateral damage wasn't there oh uh, well i mean that's it i mean we're very much uh, subjected to whatever elements um uh, uh, are out there because our job is outside so yeah it was a really 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 tough winter because having the cameras following you they get to see it all and I mean you know what do they say not to work with children animals yeah. what do we work with children and animals so you know for all the planning and, and choreography and how would have liked to, it to have gone you just literally got to see how it was what you see is what you get with us so you see so you you heard sheep you heard children but you let <laughs> sheep roam and you let children roam and you yeah. sort of sense they'll come back together when they need to be they do tend to come back when they're hungry is, is, is it, a, is it a, do, does the human do the kids mirror the, mirror the lambs sometimes? absolutely what well, we all do we all do I know we try to make ourselves really civilised yeah, yeah. you know we're human and we're not at all animalistic but actually when you get back to basics like with what we were saying about giving birth you're not that far removed from, from, from that. So if you can if you can see in your own behaviour um, the instincts of the animals, then, then you, you won't go so far wrong, I think. No, hopefully many people listening to this show are happy with their lives. You know, we're happy with ours. Mm. Uh, you know, we bask in the smug zone whenever we can and we make no apologies for it uh, because it, life is there for living and, and for sort of, sort of squeezing every drop hey, out of it. that's absolutely it. Yeah, but then we watch your show and you take oh. it to a different level because, you know, I don't know if, you know, if where heaven is, what it's like uh, who's there who's not there how you get in you know can you get a plus one do you need a laminate access all areas I think you can get in if you're a shepherd I think you're automatically qualified to get through St Peter's Gate but aren't you already that my point is aren't you already there because because your life does seem so idyllic well, I mean, it is. It has its moments, but we're not like the Waltons. We don't skip around everywhere. You know, not everything doesn't always go right. You know, it uh, it can be tough. And I mean, just the kind of life you lead, you you're very much uh, at the mercy of elements, and things don't always go right. But that's a life lesson in itself, isn't it? Yeah, the, no, I agree with you. So, so when you say yeah, yeah, but it can be tough. No, that's one. That's mm. one of the reasons it's idyllic because you have the yin and the yang, and you have the rough and the smooth. You know, people who have life over smooth uh, yeah. can end up being, you know 
extremely depressed and dejected and wondering what it's all about, well, which I mean, is why they could put themselves out and do extreme things well, exactly. at the weekends. That's absolutely true. And I mean, particularly with the children, they, they're kind of getting a life lesson without even knowing they're being taught. They're yeah. getting to see the circle life, aren't they? Now, who's tending the farm while you're off to gallivanting uh, doing all this stuff? Clive, my husband. Okay. He's looking after the farm and the children. He's there as the adult presence, should I say. Because you might you might fall into the TV chef trap. So t- TV chefs, they've got a restaurant. The restaurant's doing really well. They're spotted in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Then they get on telly and mm-hmm. they're on telly so much and they're writing books so much are going on tour so much they can no longer run the restaurant. Do mm-hmm. you feel like that you're on that the precipice of that happening? No. Look at my hands, they're like shovels. <laughs> Honestly, no, they de- are, definitely You've got not. the strongest hands I've ever seen. Oh, that was so polite, strongest hands. They are, you <laughs> shot my hand and I was like, will I ever see my hand again? It's like, sort of crumpled in your palm. Well, I feel like the, the whole crux of what I do absolutely depends upon the fact that you're genuine because I'm very aware of what you've just said. And as long as people keep coming and knocking on the farmhouse door and Clive keeps saying, she's down in lower field, fitching for, you know, mending drainage ditch, I'm fine because that's genuine you know if I'm on a yacht in Marbella with a lapdog that's no good is it why a yacht in Marbella with a lapdog well it's <laughs> it, that might happen you know when if you if you call yourself an author but I yeah. still kind of like turn around when people say that right. because I don't feel like that I feel very separate to this I do my thing the material the stuff that I write about I have to do it yeah so that's a perfect excuse when I miss yet another deadline right I'm busy gathering material because yeah. I'm doing it so you gather kids you gather sheep you gather material yeah you're a gatherer I'm a gatherer you know, so people want to go and see on the tour if they want to go and see on the tour 60 days to choose from is that right all over the place 60 that means a proper I'm tour. coming to London I'm actually coming into your because I'm hoping you're going to come 22nd of July well I live I in Windsor you're coming near Windsor it's Tabernacle, it's Notting Hill, isn't it? No, I can't do that one. I can't Because well, I, well, I, I don't live here, I don't live in London. I'll, well, I'll come and get you. No, no, I'm a horse. Let, okay, deal. That's it. <laughs> Is that all right? As long as it's been checked out, the horse, <laughs> uh, for its service history. Because they do that with horses, don't you? You can check them out now, can't you? Yeah, like you can. Cars. Okay, great to meet you. And you too. You're amazing. Absolute delight. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky on Virgin Radio. Thank you so much for listening to this, the podcast of the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show. Don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast and you will never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with Sky. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.